0: a wonderful hymn, you know. Now, will you turn with me Hebrews chapter 13, and I'm going to read from verse 10 through verse 16, but tonight we want to begin by only considering verse 10 and 11. So we're going to read verses 10 through 16 of Hebrews 13, and we shall look at verses 10 and 11. And we want to consider, as we look and as we start this passage, sacrifices, suffering, and sanctification. So, Hebrews 13 10 We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And just thus far, may God bless the reading of his word. Now, I think it's quite clear and quite plain that in these verses, the writer to the Hebrews is drawing a great distinction between the Levitical system, the Levitical sacrifices and all that it entails, and the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, he's been working up to that, and he has already done a great deal of work in presenting to us the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, his death, and all that it accomplishes, in contrast to the Levitical system. And really, he's making, ultimately, a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant between the old Levitical sacrificial system and the new uh, effective accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So this is about this kind of comparison or contrast that the writer to the Hebrews is now drawing our attention to. If you lived under the old system, and as we now do live under the new covenant the old covenant the new covenant you would discover that under both covenants old and new that there are rights and there are privileges and there are consequences and there are responsibilities so it doesn't matter what system you live under you are responsible or you enjoy privileges whether it's under the old covenant like under Moses in Israel in the old testament or under the lord jesus christ whatever covenant you find yourself in, there are all of these things that are connected to us. There's no question that the old covenant reminds us of a legal system. That is the Levitical system of sacrifice. It's a legal system. But there's no question that the new covenant reminds us of the gracious work of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not right, I think, to call it a system. I've used that word, the old and the new system. It would be much better to say, of course, as the Bible says, the old and the new covenant. That those were systems of worship, of approaching God. So, under the old system, under the old covenant, the Levitical method, the Levitical sacrifice, you came to God, you drew near to God with your sacrifice, your lamb, your bull, your pigeon, goat, whatever it might be, and you presented that to God. And there were a multitude of other kind of offerings within the system, the Levitical order, by which you came to God, that God required. When we come to the New Covenant, you discover even in this passage, he talks about the thanksgiving or the praise or the sacrifices, the sharing, the being generous and those things. He talks about the sacrifices that we engage in under the New Covenant. So, this is what the writer to the Hebrews is considering. The covenant that he has been explaining to us, the new covenant, is a much better covenant than the old, and is a much more uh, accurate biblical covenant uh, in the sense that it fully accomplishes what the old could never accomplish. Or to put it another way, the old is filled with copies and shadows. But the new covenant is filled with the person, the reality The substance, Jesus himself. So, why does the writer do that? Because I think ultimately he's bringing us to this magnificent conclusion. If you look at verse 20 and verse 21, this is where he is ultimately going. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, there very well may be just a year's worth of sermons in those two verses. Right? I mean, it just there's so much there, right? But notice, he makes a great theological statement in verse 20, doesn't he? He talks about the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead. He talks about Jesus being the great shepherd of the sheep. He talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. And then, he talks about the subsequent privileges and practices in verse 21, that in light of that great statement that he's made in verse 20, may this God of peace then equip you with everything good, right? That you may be able to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's a great theology that He's going to. Now the whole epistle, as we have seen and as we have been considering for a long time now, is filled with theology, filled with biblical truth concerning the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over everything you read about in the Old Testament itself. So here, in this portion, in chapter 13, the writer, I think, is getting to the heart of the matter. Now, just when I have thought in my studies that he has arrived at his pinnacle, I am moved to consider and put it further down the line. No, I think the pinnacle is verse 20 and verse 21. That's his, that's his benediction. That's his closing. That's what he finally wants to say. But he is coming to the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is ultimately... What is it that benefits me as a Christian and benefits you? What is it that is of profit to me as a believer in the new covenant? What are the benefits to me? I mean, for instance, the whole epistle to the Hebrews is about these Hebrew Christians in the first century who are debating within themselves, among themselves, who are considering among themselves whether they should go back to the old system, to the old way. Because the old was such a beautiful system. You could see certain things. You could see the priesthood, the sacrifices. Jesus, you can't see. He's in heaven. Jesus is a priest who is gone. He's now in heaven, as we know, interceding for us. He's made just one sacrifice, it's done. So you don't observe sacrifices over and over again. So as they thought about that old system being Hebrews, out of which they came and were very familiar with, they were tempted to consider that maybe they should go back. That maybe there is something after all to the old that's better than the new. And these are the things that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing. And every warning passage whether you believe there are five warnings or six warnings in the epistle to the Hebrews, whatever it is, those warning passages are designed by the writer to draw them back. To hold them from going into the old from which they've come. Because that would be a very dangerous thing. So his ultimate goal within the framework of the theology of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ is their perseverance that it is precisely because Jesus is at the right hand of God that they must endure, that they must persist, that they must persevere as Christians. And you know, I, when I'm, the more I read my Bible, I, I, I find that. That here is, here is God who has designed this entire redemptive story that centers around the person of His beloved Son that everything that he does through the Lord Jesus Christ is to save his people and to bring them safely to heaven so that they can be with him forever and forever. And that requires so many things in the scheme of redemption, the scheme of salvation. So these Hebrews, should they really be thinking about going back to this old way, this old system? The answer, of course, is they should not be thinking about that And what they should be thinking about is that, yes, there is profit and there is benefit to persisting and persevering within the new covenant that they now belong to. So the writer to the Hebrews in the entire epistle has been making contrasts. He's been making comparisons between the old and the new. Let me give you one which is so clear, I think, to all of us. In the Old Testament, Aaron is a high priest. He was a high priest. Under the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest. Now the question is, which is better? Which is better? The Lord Jesus Christ is better. But the question is, why is he better? That's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. So let me give you some examples of why Jesus is better than Aaron. First of all, he is better because of who he is. The writer to the Hebrews describes the... Lord Jesus Christ, as a superior son. I mean, Aaron is just a servant, like Moses. But Jesus is the son, and he is superior because of his sonship, but in his sonship, he is said to be sinless. So he's very distinct from Aaron, right? Because Aaron is a sinner. So, when you look at that, you say, Jesus is superior. When you look at the priesthood, for example, of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus is Melchizedekian. Hebrews chapter 7 and onwards. And what does that mean? Well, that means it's a priesthood that continues forever, that has no end, that it is permanent. And it just resides in the high priest himself, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Jesus is better because of who he is. Second, he is better because of what he has done, as we know, right? His sacrifice for sin is a final sacrifice, And it's a single sacrifice and it's a permanent sacrifice and he doesn't have to do it again and again. And what does his sacrifice do? It brings forgiveness. It heals us of our sins. It removes our guilt. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus does. Aaron, on the other hand, you discover is the complete opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aaron is sinful and a sinful man. His order is Levitical which means that it passes from Aaron to his son, to his son, to his son, from generation to generation to generation. Not a permanent priesthood in one priest like Jesus, but a priesthood that passes from one father to the son and so on. And his sacrifices, or the sacrifices of the old system, are these lambs and bulls and goats Uh, which have to be, as you know, perpetually offered over and over again, whose blood, having been shed, could not obtain the forgiveness of sins. What a difference between the Lord Jesus Christ as priest, and what He's done in His sacrifice to Aaron, and all the subsequent Levitical priests and their sacrifices, and the blood that was shed. What a massive difference between Jesus and Aaron. So, we discover then that the writer to the Hebrews portrays Jesus as superior, right? Superior to angels because the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Superior to angels because they worship Him. Superior to angels because they are ministering spirits to, to, who are sent out to minister salvation to those who inherit what Jesus has obtained. Not only superior to angels, superior to Moses because Moses is a servant in the house but Jesus is a son over the house. Superior to Joshua because Joshua did not obtain a final rest but Jesus is the final Sabbath rest for us having obtained it. We still anticipate entering into such a glorious Sabbath rest in Jesus. And then as we have seen, certainly superior to Aaron in his person and in his work. So the writer has been doing this all along, making contrasts, making comparisons between Christ and between all others. So for example, when you come to now verse 10, and you look at verse 10, you will notice for instance that verse 10 is certainly a contrast to verse 9. So what is is verse 9? Verse 9 says, "...do not be led away by diverse strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods." which have not benefited those devoted to them, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And you'll notice the connection between food and eating, right? Food in verse 9 and eating in verse 10. So this is a comparison. This is a contrast. But there are two contrasts particularly that we have to consider. I read tonight verses 10 through 16 because these are the two contrasts. First of all, in verses 10 through 14, a contrast primarily in participation. And then secondly, in verses 15 and 16, a contrast in praise. In participation, first of all, 10 through 14, and secondly, verses 15 and 16, a contrast in praise. When we talk about participation, first of all, There are two things also to consider within the framework of participation. First of all, there is the place to consider and there is the practice to consider. The place we have an altar and the participation, they have no right to eat, those who serve in the tent. And praise, at verses 15 and 16, in relation first of all to the kind of sacrifice and therefore the kind of service that we as Christians render to one another. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have. Service, right? As that's our sacrifice. That's how we praise God. So I want to talk then about participation. So verse 9 simply says, and talks about a participation in foods... And he means, as we have already seen, ceremonial food offerings in the Old Testament, which he says all of those people who were devoted to them obtained no benefit and no profit from them. So it was a long system from Moses to the end of the Old Testament. And all of these people are engaging in these food offerings and eating them, devoted to them over centuries of time, and then the writer to the Hebrew says it benefited nothing. was of no value, no benefit to them. What is needed always, he says, is that we need to be strengthened by grace, not by food. Verse 9, right? Strengthened by grace. We're saying a little bit about grace tonight. And sacrifice and so on. So what he is saying is all the teachings and all the doctrines and all the ideas... Notice verse 9, diverse teaching, strange teaching, all of them are to be measured against the gospel. The gospel is the standard for our, that's our measuring stick, to measure every idea that comes out. And there are a lot of ideas that are coming out today, right? We must measure them only by the scripture, only by the gospel. The real question is, when you think about all the stuff that's out there, is do they strengthen my heart by grace? That's all. That's it. Is this something that strengthens my heart because it reflects the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we need to do. Anything that doesn't do that is not supported by the gospel and is not from the gospel and of the gospel and therefore is not of grace but becomes some system of works to obtain favor with God. And as the writer says in verse 9, there's no benefit to that. You devote yourself to to a consistent offering of and eating or participating in the food sacrifices in the Old Testament. You devote your life to that. You are fastidious in that. There's no benefit to those who devoted their lives to that, he says. Because ultimately it's not of grace. And therefore it should be discarded and it should be rejected. But listen, you need something better to compare that to with, right? So if you have nothing else other than that system, and because God has put that in place, you observe what God has put in place for the simple reason that that old system is pointing somewhere to a better system, to a better covenant, to a better man, to a better savior, to a better sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of all the Old Testament. Ineffective, ineffectual sacrifices to point to the one Sacrifice to come, which would accomplish everything that the old could never do and accomplish. So, my heart, your heart, your spiritual life is only going to benefit from grace and not from all kinds of other things strange, diverse teachings or food sacrifices in the Old Testament, which is to say, your spiritual life is only dependent upon Christ, upon grace. That's the gospel. So this waste of time, because that's what it is, verse 9, doesn't benefit anyone who have devoted themselves to it. This participation in verse 9, diverse strange teachings, obligatory Old Testament sacrifices. What will they do to your life? They will lead you astray from grace. You need to be strengthened, your heart needs strengthening by grace, but if you participate in these other things, and there are many things we could say today that people are participating in because they think they're right, but they're being led away from grace from Jesus himself. so verse ten is the the antidote is the medicine okay the The way you strengthen your heart by grace, the things you think about here, continue this line in terms of a contrast between participation and place. So notice in verse 10 the participation. Look what he says. He says, We have contrasted in verse 9 with those who have no right to eat. We have something. They have something. What they have doesn't benefit them. But we have, he says, in contrast to what they have, we have an altar, he says. In other words, we have a participation in something that if you follow verse 9, forbids you and would exclude you from the right participation. So you have to abandon verse 9. This is the whole teaching of Hebrews. Don't go back. Abandon the old. Stay with the new. Keep on. Persist. Persevere. And notice that this participation is is connected uh, also to place, right? He says, verse 10, we have an altar. But it is not for those who practice, verse 9. So if you want the food obligatory, if you want the food offerings, if you want strange and diverse teachings, then verse 10 is not for you. We have an altar that they verse 9, don't have any right to participate in. So what is my place? What is your place? What's he thinking about? We have an altar, he says. That's our place, verse 10. Now let me show you how he thinks about place, right, in this passage. So look at verse 11. In verse 11 he says uh, that the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. Uh, And then he talks about being burned outside the camp. These are places, right? So Jesus, verse 12, suffered outside the gate, the place. And uh, verse 13, again, let us go to Him outside the, pla- the camp. Let's go to that place where He is. Verse 14, and, uh, for here we have no lasting city, the place. We seek the city that is to come. All of those places that he talks about are related to sacrifice. That sacrifice is connected to them. And it is the sacrifice that you participate in that shows where you belong. We have an altar, which those who engage in verse 9, in the obligatory food offerings, have no right to participate in. You can't have verse 9 and you can't have verse 10 together. Okay? So, simply put, do you belong to the old? Do you want the old? Do you want strange teachings? Do you want diverse teachings that take away from grace? Or do you want what is in the new? That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, right? So, let's look a little further at verse 10 and 11. Because the major question, I think, would be what altar do we have? He says, we have an altar. Well, the question is, well, what altar are you referring to? Because I know what you, you think and what I think when we think about an altar, right? Some, some place where sacrifice takes place. That's right. That is exactly what he means. He's referring to a place. He's referring to an altar where sacrifice is made. Now, under Moses, of course... The interesting thing under Moses, with all of the the multiple types of offerings that were made, the Old Testament priests were entitled to eat food from certain sacrifices. They had the right to do that. I want to show you that. So let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 7, because this explains this. This is why Leviticus, by the way, is such a crucial and an important book. Uh, because uh, the writer to the Hebrews, being Levitical himself, understands the, the, the book of Leviticus and what it's all about. And he's making these, these distinctions. So Leviticus chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, just to read these. The chapter is important as well. He says, this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy, it is most holy in the place. Where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering every male among the priests may eat of it. You see it? So, what do they get to do? They get to eat. They get to eat this. So, every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. So, the priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And you'll, you can see participation and place all the way through Leviticus chapter 7. But that's sufficient to, to give you the idea. But as you know, There are also sacrifices in the Old Testament that they were not permitted to eat. So they're allowed to eat certain sacrifices, but there are also other sacrifices that they're not permitted to eat, like the sin offering. So look at Leviticus chapter 4. So Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, in any of the Lord's commandment about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering." He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys, with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh... With, all its, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, verse 12, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on the fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. No eating, right? Just what is sacrificed, blood taken, poured out, sprinkled, and the rest of it is taken outside the camp and burned up. You don't participate in any of that, he says, in the sin offering. So there are these portions, right, that are burned up, like the fat and the kidneys and the liver and so on, all burnt up, he says, on the altar of the burnt offering, and the rest of it, skin, head, and entrails and dung carried outside the camp in Leviticus 4, 11 through 12. You read about outside the camp in this very passage of Hebrews chapter 30. This is what the writer He's thinking about, he's thinking back to Leviticus and the practice under the old covenant. So these are the, recu- these are the requirements for offerings in general. Uh, it's a very good practice, by the way, for instance, to read uh, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28 and Numbers 29, which talk about all the sacrifice, you know, the, the, the calendar of Israel and what they're required to do. I and mean, it's a wonderful study. Or verses... Uh, Chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus takes you all through the offerings that are made and the requirements that pertain to it. Before, it talks about the Aaronic priesthood in Leviticus chapter 8 and so on. So, here in Hebrews 13, verse 10 and 11, the writer is thinking of those annual sacrifices. And what do we mean by the annual sacrifices, or perhaps I should say the annual sacrifice? There's only one sacrifice made annually on the Day of Atonement, which is Leviticus chapter 16, right? Whereby the priest goes in and takes the blood of the offering for himself and for the people and makes atonement within the Holy of Holies. He can only do it on one day, can only do it once a year, and he himself alone goes in and he can only go in with blood. And the rest of it is burned up outside the camp done away with, even the scapegoat is taken away into the wilderness and released, and the sins are said to be removed from the presence of Israel. This is what he means in verse 11, right, when he's talking about these things here, when he says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That's what he's referring to. That's what he means. So on the Day of Atonement, only on that day in the year, let alone all the other days, okay, when they can eat some of the sacrifices and are not permitted to eat others, but this one sacrifice, there's no eating at all. There's no question about that. The blood is sprinkled and the rest of it is burned uh, outside the camp. And so the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the place, and he sprinkles the blood of sacrifice, participation, and the rest of the sacrifice is burned up outside the camp. In that sacrifice, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, no one gets to eat anything at all. So, generally speaking, of course, there's a, there's a close connection between altar and sacrifices that are made on it. So, when he says we have an altar, He in his mind, and we should in our minds think of sacrifice, make the connection between altar and sacrifice. And not only that, but there's a close connection between the participation associated with the altar and the sacrifices that are made on it. That's why he says what he says here, that we have an altar, but they, verse 9, who eat the obligatory food offerings have no right to eat. And then verse 11, there is this other sacrifice made where there's nothing to eat and everything is burned and consumed up. The Apostle Paul understood this also, this, this thinking, right? So let me show you that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10, first of all. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This principle of close connection between altar and sacrifices that are made. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Now Paul is also thinking about not just the Israelite sacrifices and the altar on which those sacrifices are made, but he clearly understands that in Corinth and in the ancient world that there were pagan sacrifices where an altar was also involved. If you go back to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians and look at verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. You see it? So he knows when the Corinthians go to the pagan temples to worship, there's an altar and there's sacrifices, and there's a connection between altar and sacrifice. In chapter 10, leading into the Lord's Supper of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, he's making this connection between that which is an altar of demons or a table of demons and their sacrifices and the table of the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. So in pagan sacrifices, in Levitical sacrifices, there is this connection, isn't there, between altars, places, and sacrifices, what takes place on the the altar. So we, we can say without question, the altar is the place of sacrifices. So let's ask the question, what altar do you have? What altar do I have? I'll tell you what it is. It is the cross. That's the place. The cross. The cross where Jesus made sacrifice. Because remember, altars and sacrifices are together. You have an altar, you have a sacrifice. That's the Old Testament. That's all pagan religions. But here he says, we have an altar. And therefore, we engage in sacrifices, which by the way, are going to be verse 15 and 16. So because of the cross... I must be a generous person. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I must do good and share what I have. So you can see how he makes this connection, right? So it is the cross, that is the altar that we talk here. Now some people say it's Christ specifically. I I can accept that. That the altar is Christ because he's the sacrifice, right? But I think he's talking about the place. Because he talks about outside the gate, right? And then he makes connection to the fact that we have a city. As if he's saying there is a city and there's a gate outside that city where Jesus died but we have a city as a result of what he did. Let's go out in the present time to him and bear the reproach that he bore so that we might enter our city that Abraham looked for and longed for a better city and a better country. I think that's what he's he's getting at. So the cross and the cross alone the writer to the Hebrews in his mind, is thinking, answers all the shadows of the Old Testament, fulfills all the copies, all the types, all those shadows. And and he has said this to us, I think, in chapter 9 and chapter 10, as he gets towards the end. So, will you turn to chapter 9 of Hebrews? Let's look at that. So, Hebrews chapter 9. So, verse 1. He says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Notice the place, right? So, even the first covenant, the old covenant, Moses' covenant, has a place for worship and for sacrifice. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared, first section in which the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence, called the holy place, behind the second curtain, the second section, called the most holy place, has the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tab- tablets of the covenant. Above it were the mer- cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in de- detail. I often wonder, well, well, what could you really be saying? I mean, you can't, you're can't. you not talking about detail, but you've given us some pretty, pretty concise, good stuff here. He must have been able to draw many conclusions from just that, tabernacle standing in the Old Testament. He says, These preparations, verse 6, Having thus been made, the priests go regularly, notice the priests go regularly, into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the existence of that system, right? by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Down to verse uh, 22, I think, or 23, 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these Which sacrifice? Verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest, enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Then if you look at chapter 10, verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified, chapter 10, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Have you ever seen a labor that is more useless than that? Notice the text, every priest, all of them, all of them, every one of them stands daily, every day, at His service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Just look at the monotony, right? The mundane, which can never take away sins, He says. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those are being sanctified. What a beautiful verse that is. For all time. Look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus does not have to make another sacrifice. Praise God. Praise the Lord for that. And of course you could read the the consequences or the responsibilities or the obligations for a Christian in verse 19 through to the end of chapter 10 about what you should do. You shouldn't forsake assembling yourself together, and so on and so on. So he talks about those things. Now, what is it that is significant for us, since he says we have an altar, or we have a place of sacrifice? Why is that important, right? It's important because you and I, all of us, get to participate. In the Old Testament, only the priesthood, only the males, participate only of certain sacrifices but we get all of us get to participate in this altar we have an altar so when you look at the old testament the altar in the temple or the altar in the tabernacle behind the curtain no one participates in except the high priest on one day a year but not you and me think of the privilege and the difference right What's the significance of that, of the restraint in the Old Testament and the opening up in the New Testament? What's the the significance for you and me? Here it is. You have access to God. You can draw near to God at any time because of Jesus, because of the place and because of the sacrifice he made. The cross enables us to go to God and to go continually to God. Because it's just a one-time sacrifice that perfects forever, for all time, those who have been sanctified and so on. So Jesus has made atonement for our sins. And having made atonement, He has entered into the holy place in heaven on our behalf. And there He is tonight at the Father's right hand, at God's right hand, having made atonement sacrifice for all of my sins so that He can bring me to the Father. Bring me to God. I can only go to God because of Christ. What a glorious system. Covenant, I should say. Beautiful, isn't it, in its arrangement? Now, if you're a Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Hebrews. If you were a Hebrew, some of them are saying, well, you don't have an altar like we did in the Old Testament. That's what they were saying, right? oh yes we do, the writer to the Hebrews says, we do have an altar and it is far superior in every way. It's far more significant. Why? Because it is the reality. It's the substance. It's not a copy. It's not a shadow. It's the real thing. Now what would you rather have, dear congregation? An original painting by a master on your wall or a beautiful, magnificent copy of the same painting on your wall? Well, I know what I want. I want the original. Okay? There are many copies of the one original. The one original is the original. It's the only one. There are not two originals. they are just one. All others are copies of the original. They may be magnificent. But they do not compare at all with the one. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. There are thousands of sacrifices in the Old Testament system. In that old Mosaic covenant, thousands and thousands, blood shed all the time. And it couldn't do one single thing for the people who came to worship. God just passed over because God was looking to His Son to accomplish one sacrifice, to bring us to God, to draw near to God, to have access to God. That's the difference between the old and the new, right? Between the Levitical sacrifices and the cross, which... Would you rather have? You want the many? You want the various, which can never take away your sins, right? This is what he's saying to the Hebrews. Or do you want the one single real final sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ has made for your sins? I know what I want. Okay, but don't miss the invitation of verse 10, right? He, uh, wh- or the insinuation, sorry, I should say. He says, you certainly cannot have both. You can't have Leviticus and the cross. You can't have the best of Leviticus and Jesus. You can't have both. It's either one or the other, right? It is the cross alone, He wants to tell us. That's the place. That's the altar. That is the only place that is necessary for grace to come to us and has come to us. So he says, you cannot believe, don't believe these strange and diverse teachings of verse 9, right? You don't, don't believe those, and then think you can believe the cross. Don't believe, think you can have and dabble in other kinds of things, and the gospel. You can't have that, he says. If you want to participate in strange ideas, strange things, then you exclude the cross. You don't have the cross. You you have strange and diverse teachings. That's what you have. If you want a Levitical system and the food offerings, then you exclude the cross. And you can see how compromise today in the gospel is excluding the cross and grace from people because they're taken up with ideas. Strange, diverse teachings. In fact, because of verse 9 and 10, he wants you to know, That if you participate in the old, if you participate in strange and diverse teachings, you have absolutely no connection to the cross. You exclude it. It's like like Hebrews chapter 6. You trample underfoot the Son of God. You don't care. You want both. So there are Christians today taken up with narratives. (laughs) All kinds of narratives that affect them. Theories, conspiracies, that have nothing to do with the truth. They're strange. They're diverse. Why do I say that? Because there's one thing you know about them all. They do not promote grace. They do not strengthen my heart for one single moment. They divide my heart. I need grace, this pure gospel, this cross work of the Lord Jesus to give me this heart to be strengthened by grace we need to be strengthened by grace so that we can be godly people in this world i don't want to jeopardize the cross i don't want to jeopardize the cross in my preaching and i don't want to jeopardize the cross in my believing and neither should any of us that means we will have nothing to do with strange ideas nothing nothing being promoted today no that's another altar That's not my altar. My altar is the cross. It's the cross. Paul says to the Corinthians, as I said this morning, I determined to know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. That's it. Jesus and Him crucified. That's the cross. That's the gospel. That's grace. Now listen, Levitical priests, they have no right to eat at their altar and the cross at the same time. can't be done. It's one or the other. I love what Simon Peter tells us right in his first epistle. He says, we are a holy priesthood. We are a priesthood. Who eats the food in the Old Testament? The priest's. We all are a holy priesthood who participate in the altar, the place of sacrifice, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this privilege and participation in the death of Christ who is the final, perfect, single, true sacrifice for all my sins. If a Levitical priest wants what I have, then let him abandon the old. He's welcome to do that. He's invited to do that. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. You have no right to eat. If you want that, you have no right to eat of the cross. Participate in the cross. If you want the cross, surrender that. Get rid of that. Abandon that. So Levitical participation, here's the thing, is a a physical participation, but our participation in the death of the Lord Jesus at the cross is a spiritual connection, a spiritual participation. Their participation, their eating, is limited and partial, but mine is total and unrestricted access to God because of what Christ has done. You get to feast on the entire work of Jesus Christ Not just a participation in a body, but in the blood that Jesus shed. Now remember, a lot of blood was shed in the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But all that blood shed in the Old Testament availed nothing. Think of it, gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of blood. But along comes the Lamb. Of God, slain as it were from before the foundation of the world, and He pours out His blood, and His blood brings the full forgiveness of all of my sins. Not only forgiveness, but cleansing, washing away, purification, right? I get to participate in a full sacrifice, a final sacrifice, so that all the fullness of forgiveness is mine because of Jesus. And as a result, I can go to God because I have a high priest in the presence of God who has not only made sacrifice but is now interceding on my behalf. John Brown of Haddington long ago said, he said, we feed freely upon the highest and holiest of all sacrifices. What did he mean by that? We are fully reconciled to God and the result is a beautiful fellowship and relationship. Isn't that what Jesus meant in John 6.51? I am the living bread. That has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for him is my life or the life for the world. That's what Jesus did for me. Notice verse 12. He suffered outside the gate, right? That's the place. He suffered outside the gate so that I could participate in the sacrifice, this altar, this place, this cross, through his blood. And to sanctify us, to make us holy, to set us apart as his people by his cross work. That's what Jesus has done for me. So Paul is right in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has truly been sacrificed for us. He's our Passover lamb. I like how the writer says, or begins verse 10, We have, we have. Well, do you or don't you? We have, he says. It's so easy today to hide Christ, to hide Him under so many other things. So easy, therefore, to lose Christ because you cannot see Christ, right? Behind strange and diverse teachings. But Jesus died outside the camp for all to see Him, for all to behold Him, for all to pass by, And isn't that what Jeremiah says in Lamentations? Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Do you not see and behold my sorrow, that it is like unto no one else's sorrow? That's Jesus. All you who pass by, look upon me. Isn't that what the prophet Isaiah says? Look unto me and be ye saved, all you ends of the earth. Look at me, Jesus says. Take me and only me. And so every Christian, as a result, bears the same reproach as we shall see right in verse 13. And so I must go to Him, and I must identify with Jesus, I must discard everything that hinders me, everything that obscures me, and I must take Jesus for myself. Nothing more, nothing less, no substitutes. That's why Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for our time and thank You for Your Word that You've given to us. It's marvelous truths that that the writer to the Hebrews unfolds for us. We've scarcely done justice, Lord, to this passage, to this work of Jesus. But help us to just see a little bit of what Christ has done for us so that we will not be taken up with all manner of things, But we will be fixated on the cross and Christ himself. Because from the cross flows grace to us and the forgiveness of all of our sins through the blood that was shed for us. Oh, what a beautiful gospel this is that we believe. Open our eyes to see it. Give us hearts to believe it and to trust in your word that proclaims it. And now, Father, thank you for this day. Lead us into this week and go before us and fill us with things to think about along these lines. Thank you for these truths that we've read about and studied. And Now we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with each one of us today and always. For he who was rich became poor for our sake so that we through his poverty truly might be made rich and we are rich in Christ. Thank you for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. And so we praise you tonight. Now, Lord, send us forth uh, into tomorrow and this week. Help us in our work day by day. Help us in all of our labors. Help us to think upon these things and watch over us and bring us again to worship in this place. We commend ourselves to you and pray and ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.